This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Today I'm joined by Aisha Saman and Asad Javed, who are secondary school teachers. They are both very interested in explicit writing instruction. So that will be our main topic of the show, but as usual, we'll be touching on lots of other things. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So welcome to The Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned in the introduction on today's show, I'll be talking to Aisha Zaman and Asad Javed about explicit writing instruction. Now, Aisha Zaman is a secondary school uh, English teacher and also an A-level English language teacher. She's passionate about oracy and literacy narrowing the disadvantage gap and providing a high challenge for all students. She also has a keen interest in sociolinguistics and discourse. Assad is the newly appointed head of English at a comprehensive school in Greater Manchester. He is particularly interested in championing disadvantaged pupils through a focus on grammar for writing and oracy. And I will be talking to Aisha and Assad about explicit writing instruction and more after the Teachers Talk Radio News. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration.
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC News website reports on announcements that GCSE students in England will get formulae and equations in their maths and science exams for summer 2024. The Department for Education has asked the exam regulator to extend previous support for another year to limit the impact of COVID. Most students who were due to sit GCSE exams next summer were in year seven when the first lockdown began. Teaching unions have welcomed the proposal, which is being consulted on. The DfE said it would mean enhanced formula and equation sheets for pupils in maths, physics and combined science. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said these pupils will be the last to experience two years of national closures during secondary school and that it was right that they get additional support. She went on to say it was disappointing that the decision had been made so late on, as many pupils will take mocks in the coming months or so. The union Askell welcomed the consultation, but argued that the provision of support materials should be permitted as it would reduce some of the stress of exam preparation and allow pupils to focus on core knowledge and skills. Prior to this announcement, exams in England had been due to return to 2019 arrangements. Exams were cancelled across the UK in 2020 and 2021, and grades were based on teacher assessments. When students returned to exam halls in 2022, they were given extra support. Some measures remained in place for exams in England in 2023, with exams in the same subjects spaced more apart, formulae and equation sheets in some subjects, and not being tested on unfamiliar vocabulary in modern foreign languages. But unlike the rest of the UK, students in England were not given information on topics on which they were being tested. England was also the only nation this summer to bring back in line with 2019, with Wales and Northern Ireland planning a slow return. As a result, the drop in pass grades was steepest in England. In another week of political drama, the latest government reshuffle has seen the return of many familiar faces. For education, it means the return of former Education Secretary Damien Hines as schools minister. He replaces Nick Gibb, who resigned to pursue a job in the diplomatic service. A report in FE Week focuses on Hines' previous experience leading the DfE between January 2019 and July 2019, during which time the government completed reforms to technical education. Hines has previously said, after his 2019 departure, that there was still work to do on social mobility. He was replaced by Gavin Williamson. The Education Secretary stated Mr Hines is hugely experienced and who would continue to build on Nick Gibbs' record of driving up standards. Mr Hines is the sixth person to hold the schools minister role in 18 months. The Glasgow Times reports on what it calls the long-term decline in education standards after the Institute of Fiscal Studies looked at Scotland's disappointing history in PISA figures, an international measure. Since 2012, Scottish scores in maths and science have declined. The figures also show a wide gap between the richest and poorest in maths, science and reading, but more well-off students also underperform when compared to their English counterparts. Large increases in spending and big reforms such as the Curriculum for Excellence do not seem to have translated into higher performance, according to Andrew McKendrick, one of the report's authors. A Scottish Conservative education spokesman said the report should act as a wake-up call for the SNP, 
and Scottish Labour said it exposed the damage the SNP has done. Finally, Schools Week reports on the invitation to schools to request a free portrait of King Charles II under a new government scheme. The scheme is costing £8 million. Those wishing to take up the offer must apply before the 2nd of February 2024. The King will be shown in ceremonial dress and delivery of the images will take place between February and April next year. The A3 size picture will be printed on high quality paper and be in a glazed frame. Schools which display pictures of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth will not be obliged to take down her portrait. Suggested placement of the image of His Majesty is reception areas or a function room or similar location. Schools will not be able to see the portrait before submitting requests. The image is not being funded from school budgets but out of a separate pot similar to the scheme which provided a free book to every primary school pupil to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee in 2021. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Hello and welcome back everyone and welcome in particular to my guests Aisha and Asad. Thank you so much to you both for joining me today. Um, how are you and what have you been up to? Hi there. Um, so firstly, obviously, thank you so much for having me on the show, having both me and Aisha. Um, I've had a wonderful little day. So um, as you can imagine, so there's obviously the Christmas markets on at the moment. So um, I live quite close to um, uh, the Manchester city centre. So uh, I managed to have a little walk with my brother into the city centre. We, you know, we got to sort of sample some, uh, some of the stalls at the Christmas market. So yeah, it's been a good little day. Thank you. Fantastic. How about you, Aisha? Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much again, Graham, for inviting us. Um, that looks, sounds like a, a wonderful day, Asad. I've had a bit of a lazy day today. I'm very tired after yesterday. We had this fantastic speech night in our school. Um, so just had a bit of a lazy day with my son, did some cooking. And yeah, just relaxed at home. Thank you very much. <laughs> wonderful. So um, I usually start by asking my guests to talk about how they became teachers. So I'd love to hear uh, what it was that attracted you both to education, how you got started. Yeah, so um, if I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make a little start. So, um, uh, do you know, so in my family, I've, so I think most members of my family and my extended family, in fact, I think work in the sort of public services. So I was actually born in Pakistan and then I migrated to Britain when I was 10 years old. Um, so I primarily started, I suppose, learning English from then on. Um, you know, otherwise I would have just <laughs> been familiar with the alphabet and a few sort of phrases here and there um but even you know even back in pakistan um most of my uh, a lot of my you know aunts and uncles they were teachers and they were sort of figures that i really looked up to um you know coming to britain i think the education landscape 10 or 20 years ago when i would have been in school i think it was so so different but i think um because i had that early sort of sort of faith in teachers and i think i i suppose i was kind of motivated uh by that same sort of factor of sort of being almost like a role model for pupils and i think also because of having that kind of uh learning experience of having you know learning english from you know from the age of 10 onwards um and i was you know i felt quite passionate about um ensuring that actually um you know seeing how you know how people are taught essentially and how um you know how we can sort of better 
uh, children's lives through through our instruction. Fantastic, thank you, Asad. And so it was very clear from uh, quite an early age that you wanted to be an English teacher then, is that right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, also learning English as almost like a second language. Um, I think I found, like, I had a natural interest in languages as well, mm-hmm. um, and particularly English as well. So I think, um, where early on I really, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, I suppose, engage, engage with reading so much um, in the early part of, you know, secondary school. Um, but actually, when I did sort of, uh, when I was able to gr- get to grips with reading and things like that, it was, you know, opened up, opened up a completely new world for me. So I think I do remember reading some, um, you know, I, I think by the time I could confidently read I kind of passed that phase of where I could kind of read teen fiction so I I didn't really get that kind of natural transition into reading through reading things like Harry Potter or anything like that in fact I think it was really kind of around when I was in GCSE or sixth form where which is when I could like you know confidently kind of sit down and read something in English and it was um you know when I when I was able to do that I was really you know it really completely changed my world and you know i didn't give myself an easy time either i really started with you know something like salman rushdie which was wow i wouldn't necessarily recommend it <laughs> but um yeah um but yeah from then on i've been hooked in ever since so yeah it was a challenge but i, I you know i feel like i fully embraced it fantastic and i have to say um i've been looking at your both of your Twitter accounts and I see you're learning Spanish is that right because I saw lots of stickers with Spanish vocabulary I am, the kitchen. Yeah, and I'm, yes I'm so I'm actually sat in my kitchen at the moment and I've got Spanish vocabulary stickers uh stuck all around the kitchen um yeah so I absolutely love it <laughs> it's wonderful it's it's Thank a great you. way of actually learning vocabulary um I remember I did that myself when I was learning Spanish for the first time a long time ago, but I used post-it notes because the stickers weren't available. At least I didn't know about them. But really, really good idea. Um, Sorry, Graeme. So I understand that you actually, um, so currently you're hosting the show from Mexico City. Is that right? That's right. Yes, I've been in Mexico City for just over five years now. And uh, So, So learning Spanish, was that something that you did when you got to Mexico City or did you already have prior experience of speaking I had uh, I had experience I I actually many years ago um I went to I moved to Spain and became an English teacher English is a foreign language and um that's where I learned Spanish and since then I've pretty much lived in Spanish-speaking countries so I lived in Spain for about 18 years and then yeah, and then moved to Uruguay. Um, and then from Uruguay, after five years, jumped to, to Mexico, which is where I'm at at the moment. Right. Okay. That's so interesting. So um, obviously, because I'm learning Spanish in Manchester, so primarily the Spanish that you are taught is um, is Castilian. Um, would you say that you've found Spanish to be very different across the different Latin American countries? And, and Yes. Spain? Yes, yeah. I have actually. Um, so I, I, you know, spent, I learned Spanish, Castilian Spanish from, from Spain, of course. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I pretty much spoke until I moved to Uruguay. And, and I had difficulties with the pronunciation, some of the vocabulary when I, uh, 
when I moved to Uruguay. And again, in Mexico, it wasn't as difficult because it's more sort of standard, but there's a lot of varieties across the Americas. Lots of differences um, between South America and Mexico, for example, in pronunciation um, and also vocabulary. Oh, but, fantastic. Uh, but not so much that they're not, you know, it's a bit like, uh, a little bit like American English and British English or Australian English or other varieties of English, really. The varieties of Spanish, it doesn't yeah. impede you from understanding, but it does take you a little bit of adaptation. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Aisha, how about you? How how did you get attracted to teaching? Was it also like Assad that you had family members who were teachers or was it something else? Not quite at all. Um, for me, I had um, I became a parent very young. Um, I became a parent about 1920 and I left mm. education. And I think I understood. I went back to university, sort of English literature and language as, a, an, ad, as an adult um, and via distance learning. And... I just fell in love with English and I completely understood the value of English and so yeah that's that for me it was the teachers that I met the professors I've met and so inspiring for me and understood understood the importance of stuff you know just communication oracy skills importance of English and the value it had and so I just knew from starting studying English that this is what I want to be I want to become a teacher Wonderful. Fantastic. I'd love to know how you two met as well. Were you working in the same school or, or was it something else? So we do actually currently work in the same school together, but, um, uh, you know, I, so I've recently um, been appointed as a head of English at another school, um, which is, so we have sort of worked together for the last five years now. Um, so, you know, I am very, you know, sad and, um, you know, as much as I'm looking forward to my new job, I am, I think I'm going to be, you know, quite, <laughs> I'm going to, to miss uh, Aisha and our sort of like department who are, you know, quite like a family at the moment. Yeah, likewise, um, Hassan, I'm very going. To, I'm very upset that you're going, but really proud of you that you are moving to your next step, and you'll be a fantastic head of English. But yeah, we both started together, so we've got a very special place in my heart for Assad. Um, so yeah, five years. Fantastic! So congratulations, Assad. That's quite a, quite a, a challenge or quite a, a step up, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I think I wasn't really in my right mind when, when I think I was applied for the job. But I think uh, it will sort of sink in. And I'm sure, you know, um, you know, hopefully whatever challenge comes in my way, I will, you know, try and do my best <laughs> to overcome those challenges. Wonderful, wonderful. So what I'd like to move on to now is this idea of explicit writing instruction. Because I know you're both very interested in this. Could you talk a little bit about what that means for you both and and what it is about that that interests you? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so firstly, um, I think so speaking about my background with sort of learning English and how I came to sort of learn English. And I think one of the um, reasons why, um, so in the last couple of years, I became really interested in grammar. Well, I think firstly, obviously the education landscape in England has changed so much over the last couple of years. So, uh, you know, you may recall yourself, Graham, so I'm not sure, mm. you know, what your educational experiences were. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I definitely remember, so coming, you know, arriving into the country at the age of 10, there, there was such a huge disparity, you know, in the kind of education that you might get in, depending on the school that you go to. 
And, uh, you know, I could, so my parents would not have been sort of aware of the sort of differences between, uh, so I grew up in the south of England and they wouldn't have been aware of the difference between, you know, a grammar school and, you know, just a state comprehensive. Um, and I think, you know, I, I almost feel like now that I see pupils now as well, um, I can see the sort of advantages that they, that they receive in, receiving that grammar instruction early on um, and sort of through their primary schooling. And now, I, I you know, I do think that actually uh, grammar instruction is becoming something increasingly popular across secondary schools as well. Um, so, it, you know, it is something that's hugely, hugely valuable. And then on the other hand as well, so one of our previous heads of department who's, you know, who's moved on to a new school and um, she was also very sort of like, she, you know, she really championed the idea of grammar. And though I think most of us uh, in the department at the moment would not have been, you know, very, um, you know, would have had a, um, a great competency in teaching grammar, I think um, once we sort of got to grips with it um, and realised its value in all forms of writing, like fiction, non-fiction, even essay writing, I think it's something that, you know, we've really, um, you know, seen as a great benefit and as a great tool for the pupils. So, yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add, Aisha? Absolutely. Um, growing up as well, um, went to the local kind of local school um, I'm coming from a single family background mum very limited English I, and I see it now the disadvantage that we have and the, the, the gap is widening more so for our pupils who may not have English as their first um, language at home um, and the importance of thinking of grammar not just thinking of rather thinking of grammar as just simply about rules and correctness um, to really focus on the choices of um, grammar and how does it in construct meaning it's extremely important I do think we need to stay away from that as well um, so again mentioning Helen as well she was a massive factor for me as well really making the the way I think about grammar in a different com completely different way um, being that more granular thinking about sentence levels words choice we have to remember pupils at home not all pupils have English as the first language um, and that gap that they have whereas I never had I can't recall in my kind of childhood or teenage years having the ability to even do homework at home I didn't have that place um, I couldn't ask my mother um, with English homework as well so we have to understand it's going to be within the school what we are doing as teachers to help those pupils to overcome that barrier that they have language and English yeah sorry just adding to that as well so I think um what I certainly noticed when I you know when I would have will have trained as a teacher seven eight years ago um is that I think um where pupils seem to you know they are they seem to express a reasonable interest for something like maths and science but I think English was something especially when I started training where you know when grammar still wasn't a huge uh, a huge focus in secondary education I think I could definitely see how people would struggle and they you know they would almost lose interest in the subject because I think everything seemed so um you know there, there were few rules and I think you know, we do know from research that pupils really, really value, you know, clear instructions and they really value, you know, um, routines and things like that. And I think just as much as they value routine in other parts of their schooling and in other subjects, I think having grammar just makes them feel more secure and it really makes them feel like they can command the language um, with more options and more choice. Um, and I think it just makes it a little bit more 
you know, it just gives them more tools to sort of work with explicitly rather than having to think about, you know, oh, what do I write creatively? I think sometimes, you know, we also tend to think of creativity as something, you know, something that's <laughs> that comes from us internally, but actually, you know, having those tools really allows you to be, allows you to express yourself even more freely, you know, if you can sort of uh, have a command over, well, you know, if I want to create this, you know, um, create a particular imagery about a particular setting, oh, I might use uh, prepositions and things like that. And I think it just gives pupils more explicit understanding of how their language is used. Yeah, I completely agree. Just to add on, I think for them to understand that the repertoires of possibilities with language as well when you construct meaning. So that explicit, you know, explicit kind of focus on language choice, extremely important, I think. And that metalinguistic, you know, understanding um, is really powerful. This is all really interesting. Thank you for that. So as I understand it then, it's so very, very much a, a focus upon different elements of, of grammar and language that you're trying to sort of introduce or increase the knowledge of the students that, that the students have. Uh, is, is that it? I'm trying to get my kind of head around it as I'm, as I'm a, my background is as an, in, in an, as an English language teacher, but um, yeah, as a foreign so. language. So it's a bit different to kind of try and understand what exactly um, how you'd approach this with the actual students. It'd be great yeah. if you could sort of give me a better idea of of how you'd actually sort of approach a lesson, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, firstly, um, you know there is a there is a study by uh, done by the University of Exeter, um, who came up with the idea of the LEAD principles, and LEAD sort of stands for an acronym as well. Um, and I think um, <laughs> now I, now I'm sort of forgetting what LEAD actually stands for. But what one of the um, main elements in there is the idea of using an authentic text. Okay, so I think uh, A is uh, I think. A in LEAD stands for authentic text. So it's the idea of introducing grammar um, through authentic texts written by what you might see as like sort of proper writers um, rather than, um, you know, when we think of grammar instruction, you know, <laughs> we get a picture of maybe a Victorian classroom in mind where you're sort of sat down going through, you know, various rules of education and things like that. Now, um, so you know, thinking about what a lesson might look like. So, um, you know, I, I think Aisha and I discussed that we might think about, um, we might discuss how um, it's used in, you know, fiction and then maybe non-fiction as well. So just thinking about fictional writing. So um, I, I did, I taught a lesson recently actually, and it was actually around the use of preposition uh, and prepositional phrases to create um, imagery. And this was actually done with a um, bottom set year 10 group, or, you know, obviously if you're listening in from a different country, um, it's a, a GCSE group, okay, or who are in the early years of the GCSE group. And um, uh, so they, uh, you know, the pupils started off by firstly, you know, we approach the lesson with vocabulary. So the pupils are given uh, explicit vocabulary instruction as well. And they had to organize words to do with power um, into powerfulness and um you know weakness so it was words like ooh, you know being misanthropic is that power is that weakness and then they had words like you know hubris would you categorize that, uh, that as power or something that's a weakness then after discussing those words we looked at an extract um 
of a dystopian text um and it uh, you know we kind of looked at okay well how does the how is the writer perhaps creating uh, an impression of the the outside world or nature being something that's quite toxic or quite sort of misanthropic um for the characters and whilst we were looking at it we explicitly focused on the use of prepositions that we use to create imagery or create the surrounding and then um obviously we we had a discussion around it um you know i think there were so we looked at a particular text uh where i think there was sort of acid rain and the snow was really violent and it was really um you know sort of harmful to the characters and they were afraid to go outside and so there were phrases like all oh, that they stood in a gully okay and we discussed why is it important that the writer is telling us that they're in a gully he could have just told us that they're hiding but it's just the fact that it's a narrow space that keeps them away from danger you know they don't want to be out in the open because out in the open means to be exposed to be exposed to that greater threat so after we sort of had a valuable discussion and we you know we discussed why um those prepositions are valuable within that particular extract then pupils were given uh, an image of their own and they had they were given sentences uh simple sentences okay what those sentences look like and then um we sort of modeled how we might improve those sentences by using prepositions so i think uh, if i re just remember off the top of my head it was something like okay we're, go we're going to describe you know rain outside in you know <laughs> in oldham in <laughs> greater manchester um something you know that the pupils would all be familiar with um and you know, we had a sentence and then we looked at, okay, well, how can we add in prepositions? Okay. And how might we use prepositions to personify the rain? And then, you know, people came up with these beautiful phrases like, oh, you know, in the, you know, the clouds were raining heavily. Um, sorry, I am just making this off the top of my head after, you know, having a, a significant amount of mulled wine. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, things like, you know, in the, the clouds are, you know, they are misanthropic and they are, you know, out in the open, the, you know, the characters exposed and things like that. And, you know, giving that sort of task of where, you know, very controlled examples of, okay, you've got these simple sentences, but you just have to improve them using prepositional phrases. That was a really nice scaffold for those pupils, which allowed them to sort of, you know, play with play with the language and to see oh where might these prepositions uh, add value to those sentences before sort of giving them a more open-ended task of then writing freely um but i think because they saw they were able to learn the principle of okay well i've made these explicit choices using the prepositions that i know and using the vocabulary that i know that they were then able to you know they had the confidence to then okay well if i then had to do it from scratch Okay, that I could maybe do that and I might, you know, add a few prepositions here and there to create imagery and to personify the weather. Fantastic. Thank you. That that puts it really much into context. That's really, uh, really good. Thank you. Okay. Aisha, is, is that the way that you approach this as well or are there any differences to what Asad has, has explained? No, very simple, um, similar as well. Um, yeah. I think Asad introduced me to the lead principles um, by the study done by Exeter University, but I was doing something very similar already. Um, I can give two examples. Um, first, I would say from a, quite a low ability year seven class um, who are studying the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, so something I kind of led on last year and this year as well was 
oracy and dialogical teaching. So like priming the pupils before they attempt anything written down. I think that's so important, um, especially for our kind of lower ability pupils. So they were studying and trying to create noun phrases um, for Odysseus and Achilles in the Iliad. So before we kind of started, we kind of looked at some images. Um, I did this kind of, I think Voice 21, did this where you agree, you build on a statement and you have to challenge a statement as well. So I posed a question, how is Achilles petulant? So one of our keywords from last lesson. Um, so they, someone had to agree in pairs and someone had to build upon that point and then challenge. And then the same question again for Odysseus um, as well. After they did that, they had a lovely kind of discussion, um, used their oracy skills to support their thinking process and deepening that understanding of the of the task for that lesson. Under the visualizer, we modeled how to create noun phrases. So just like Asad said, really explicit teaching of how to use prepositional phrases, um, use a non-finite clause. Um, before we kind of attempted, um, the pupils attempted you know, independently themselves, there was a lot of modeling by me um, so really started thinking, so on top of my head I can start thinking, but they were writing something about Odysseus, um, how he, how, what happens to him, his journey, how it evokes sympathy for um, the reader. So I just recall the people using like a determinate to begin, um, an um, unhappy Odysseus, grieving, longing for home, and then adding a prepositional kind of phrase as well, through his endless, endless struggle. Um, and then trying to finish off with like a simile, a metaphor, and I think the top of my head was like a lifeless prisoner, one of the pupils used, which I, I really liked. Um, so it was a lot of explicit learning of like grammar choices. Um, a second choice, um, something that I'm started off doing now, as I've told you, A-level language teacher, the first time I'm teaching component three um, on the Educas, um you know um exam board is again creative writing so i've used something extremely similar for year 12 pupils as well um so we've called it slow writing so at the moment they are looking at some dystopian texts so really breaking down every word into class so is it a determiner preposition verb and the first lesson was how can we now change the verb choices by the present participle and present tense or past tense and then for them to try it on their own as well so looking at those authentic texts linking back to that lead um, um, example from um, Exeter University looking at authentic texts and then using that to create their own meaning and their own choices so again looking granular but I think it's, it's so important before this pupils start writing it's explicit you know understanding the examples of explaining and introducing what is being taught establishing the purpose of the writing um going back to year 12 again they have to create a creative writing piece for 300 words and then after they've done that in the exam they have to write a 200 word commentary on why they've used and the purpose of using that language so i think it's, it's really important for promoting that deep metalinguistic learning and understanding word choices and then develop the independence rather than just compliance and rather than just telling just to write something about um, this image or write something about a dystopian setting. Um, it's, it's about priming the pupils. Fascinating. Thank you. That, that's uh, both, both of you have explained really interesting context. So it's much clearer for me now, I think, uh, to understand what this is all about. But 
interestingly enough, you both mentioned dystopian texts, and I wondered if this has um, become a more popular aspect of uh, of English teaching these days, given the kind of world we live in, or is, or is that just a coincidence? Um, I think, um, do you know, you may be absolutely right. I think maybe it is, there is perhaps a culture shift that, um, you know, people's people's maybe uh, express a more natural interest in dystopian fiction you know a world that's different to ours to maybe um cope with the challenges of our modern society um but you know that's you know that's absolutely not the case i think we <laughs> the maybe the, the two examples that we've discussed happen to be dystopian um but i think you know these the principles that we're talking about ultimately you know that that you know it stands for any text um, obviously, for example, Aisha rightly mentioned the Odyssey and the Iliad, and I think um, those two texts, you know, maybe a few years ago, um, within you know a lot of schools within England, you know, that would have been unimaginable to expose um, Year Seven pupils to those kinds of texts, to those classics. But actually, I think you know, I think now there's obviously a greater understanding in the last you know maybe five or ten years. Um, that pupils need to be exposed to those classics and, you know, that there's real value in those. Um, but yeah, um, you know, you, you know, you may have really touched on something that perhaps, you know, maybe we are more naturally inclined to exploring dystopian texts um, just so we can have those uh, discussions about, you know, the world that we live in now that's perhaps, you know, we, we may not necessarily wish to touch on those subjects. Um, explicitly but perhaps dystopian fiction allows us a vehicle to actually carry carry out those conversations yeah i would agree with Assad. not it's not just focusing on dystopian um texts you know i mentioned the iliad the odyssey um so it's, it's about different genres exposing pupils to different genres but understanding why writers have used that language and what purpose it has what meaning it presents um so whilst i've talked about dystopian year 12 we also talk about fantasy we look at fantasy we look at historical fiction so it's given that wide choice but ultimately um it's to integrate the reading and the writing to show how real writers make language choices and how they can broaden their kind of idea about grammar and concepts as well so it's not just focusing on dystopia of course yes okay good good to know and that's in, it's really interesting to hear you uh you know you're talking about using of very classic texts i'm imagining you would also introduce your students to contemporary writers as well is that the case absolutely yeah absolutely so we so i think firstly um i do just want to discuss the reasoning for the classics um i think again just going back to probably our the pair of us like our backgrounds and you know the what we were sort of exposed to and I remember when I was giving the interview uh, for the head, head of English role as well um, now the school that I will be going to is a very you know it's an, it, in a very diverse community um, you know it's in the heart of the city and it is so therefore attracts um, people from all sorts of backgrounds um, and I remember the head teacher actually questioning me as to um, you know the value of uh, diverse fiction or fiction from BAME writers and things like that and you know I and I think I still stand by my response which was you know I do strongly believe in um incorporating you know BAME writers into our you know curriculum journey and you know people's it's extremely important that pupils have exposure to that 
But at the same time, you know, there's extreme value in classics. And I think sometimes as English teachers, you know, English teachers, we do tend to be, you know, more, maybe more progressive than, uh, you know, naturally because of the content that we read. But um, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we might um, sort of brush aside the classics as sort of like, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to focus on um, you know, the phrase that I read on Twitter, dead white men. Um, and actually, I remember discussing in my interview that actually, you know, we if we didn't discuss those, then we'd be disadvantaging our pupils. You know, we don't just prepare them for GCSEs and A-levels, we want to prepare them for life. So say, for example, if one of my pupils goes to a university um, where they are, you know, where they're in the company of pupils who've gone to private schools and things like that, then I do want them to have had the same um, instruction that and the same literatures that, you know, their other peers may have engaged in during their educations. Um, but, you know, it is about ensuring that they do get that broad field. So in our uh, uh, current school at the moment, we have a very linear journey through our curriculum. So they start off year seven um, looking at the Iliad and the Odyssey, because obviously that's the foundation of um, most literatures in, you know, in Western culture. But then by the end, they do explore more contemporary texts like Things Fall Apart by Chinyo Achebe. But actually, you know, there's a clear link there. So, you know, where they studied you know, a, a tragic heroes um, at the start of year seven, that's then clearly linked to how the idea of a tragic hero has developed over time or how modern writers like Chinyo Achebe has also used those same principles and those same conventions within his own writing to create, you know, great heroes like Okonkwo who are also equally as hubristic as, you know, Achilles and Odyssey, uh, sorry, Odysseus. I completely agree. I think there is scope for modern campaign, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that diversity within our English curriculum. But there is value to classic works as well. And uh, more, and I noticed more so how uh, we do Othello, so we look at the kind of Aristotle's tragic hero concept. And I think it's so important that you know we shouldn't be ditching classic texts for just you know contemporary stories. There there needs to be a blend of past and present. Um, text to develop that crucial skills in our pupils so they have that the overall understanding of you know they can utilize the values of a classic text as well I think year nine I, I don't know if you agree Asad but I do the classic tragedy that we study Othello which is rampant with racism and like systematic racist society but it's it's so wonderful to utilize Shakespeare's text there um, to kind of make an understanding of like humanity and the universal aspect of jealousy. How does that shape a text and society concerns about manipulation and honor and reputation? So there is so much value with classic text, and I think something like a such a complex um, play like Othello is really worth like exploring with our pupils. Mm. Um, and just touching on that again, so yeah, Aisha, like you mentioned specifically with year nine, so our year nine curriculum, so um, they, I think it's kind of the overarching sort of, um, the overarching brand of the year nine curriculum is, I suppose, tragic, uh, tragic heroes over time. So they start off the year looking at Othello, um, so Shakespearean tragic hero, but then they look at The Crucible with John Proctor being a more, um, you know, modern tragic hero with who doesn't necessarily have the same status as, you know, Othello uh, being this war general, but that actually equally, you know, despite not coming from that, um, 
sort of more aristocratic background, he still has uh, features of a uh, tragic hero, but they are just modern. And then finally looking at, you know, they look at a conquo and things fall apart. So it really helps them to understand how, you know, writers over time, you know, kind of use those same conventions. And hopefully that translates into their own writing as well, that, you know, being original doesn't have to mean thinking of something uh, from scratch, but it may just mean adapting what we already know to discuss uh, important um, issues in our own time. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Very, very interesting. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, um, anyone who is, who is teaching uh, English, of course, in the UK in particular will know this, but I, I don't. So I'm going to ask you the question, how much freedom do you have on the text that you choose? I'm presuming depending on the exams, you have constraints. Um, but what about other examples? Are you given guidance or are you left up pretty much up to yourself to choose sort of texts uh, that you find are interesting and relevant to your students? So I think it's really, um, I, in all honesty, I do think, so obviously there are clear challenges to um, education at the moment, you know, uh, with especially the current political landscape and whatnot. But I do actually think genuinely from the time when I would have started education, it's moved in the right direction. And um, so I remember our current school where Aisha and I currently work, um, when we started at the school, there was a very, you know, you can only really describe it as quite a dated curriculum. So, you know, it was the kind of thing where, you know, as a teacher, you could make uh, a choice freely about the text that you taught, as long as it maybe fit, uh, fitted a certain theme. So going back to dystopia, Graham. So, you know, if, um, if that term's focus was dystopian texts, you could choose your own dystopian text to teach. But really, you know, now thinking more from like a, a an overview of, of a department, really, you know, those 30 pupils that are sitting in, for example, Aisha's class uh, versus those 30 pupils that are sitting in my class, you know, what value is there if Aisha is teaching one text and I'm teaching the other? You know, yes, there is um, some freedom, but, um, you know, whilst freedom is lovely, um, I think it does have to bear consistency because pupils have conversations outside of classrooms. And, you know, it is really important to get that consistent consistency right as well. On that matter, however, so recently in the last three years, we've gone through and actually completely transformed our Key Stage 3 curriculum. And actually, in a way, you know, Aisha, you can tell me if you think it's correct as well, but I think there's, there was ample choice. So, you know, because the curriculum transformation happened quite democratically, we did have you know, we, we did have valuable discussions prior to choosing those texts as to why we are choosing those texts and uh, whether, you know, everyone believed that those texts were the right texts to teach. Um, obviously, when you get to GCSE, there is a limitation because of, you know, uh, policy at the moment, because obviously, uh, you know, as you'll be aware, so for the English GCSE, um, you can only really teach British literature. Now, we are quite privileged in our school in that we have a sixth form. So when pupils get to sixth form, you know, there is a broad range of texts that they study. So, you know, they do study classics like Wuthering Heights. Um, however, they do also then study, you know, something like A Streetcar Named Desire, which I know is obviously very popular in lots of schools. Um, and then depending on the component that you've chosen for the prose, you can teach really, you know, lots and lots of different types of texts. So for example, we teach A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hosseini, um, you know, which is, you know, uh, absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, 
and then the handmaid's tale as well you know which is obviously you know currently popular because of a very popular series so yeah i think i think at the moment i you know you guys can comment on whether you whether you agree with me but i do think there's a right balance at the moment of um freedom versus you know something more prescribed yeah. what do we think I agree, Asad, if I could drop in as well. I remember when I started, I started with you, but I was NQT. And you probably agree, Asad, we want, one thing we wanted was consistency. I think every teacher was doing their own thing when we started. And I think it's, it's a lovely balance now that we have. We still need to, our pupils to get to the outcomes and there needs to be some form of consistency that all teachers are doing the same thing. I recall a fairly new teacher, there was a, such ample choice and everyone was doing their own thing. It was a very confusing place and time for me um, and I, I believe that you know with the overhaul of key stage three we've got that we've got that balance of the classics and the modern um, literature now as well but it's also what I think going back to Othello in year nine is what we do with it as well and how kind of high quality our curriculum has become um, so you know Othello being a classic but we're talking about this kind of universal idea of the perversion of notion of women as property you know so it's, it's going into the more kind of a deeper understanding of the text that we have. Um, and, and I agree with you, we are very lucky to have a sixth form at, um, at our current school. So we have more ample choice there as well. So I think it's, it's, it's a perfect balance at the moment. Yeah. What do you think, Graham? What, uh, how would you, uh, what would be your opinion on this? Oh, I think it makes a lot of sense to to have the consistency that you both described um, rather than the kind of absolute freedom of choice. I think being able to to change it a little bit and introduce texts that are of particular interest or relevance to the students as well makes sense, but not beyond the point, as you say, that it becomes something that everybody decides for themselves because that's probably going to do a disservice to the students uh, as well. So I, I, I kind of am encouraged by what you both said. Yeah, absolutely. And I do also think, I think um, sometimes, um, so I think, you know, five or 10 years ago, there may have been the culture of, you know, we need to, there would have been a real push for, right, we need to get more diverse literature into our curriculums. And I think whilst it's really good, you know, there is a there is a time and place for everything. So, you know, you can have reading clubs for those kinds of things. But actually, um, it is really, really important that, you know, as educators, it's our responsibility to introduce pupils uh, and to encourage them to participate um, with and engage with texts that they may not naturally otherwise wish to engage with. So, you know, I don't think any of my pupils are naturally going to pick up the Crucible or the 19th century version of uh, Frankenstein uh, if it were not almost teacher-led. Um, so I think, yeah, there is absolute you know, it is our responsibility to introduce them to um, texts and ideas that they may not naturally come into contact with. Yeah, I agree. You know, that's where the extracurricular comes in. I myself have run a diversity book club, um, but just 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 for diversity, I just don't think we should we still should be safeguarding the teaching of classic literature and not deprive our young people of the wealth of knowledge and enjoyment that they can have from like heritage and historical classics and I don't think it's justifi justifiable just for that reason um, so yeah they need to have varied kind of titles and yeah <laughs> In interesting um, I'd love to hear more about Aisha this diversity book club you're talking about 
What, um, how does that work? So this was something we ran last year, uh, myself and another member of staff, um, she is the head of like, the cultural um, of, of, Blue, of our school, sorry, I mentioned her name then, but we had a diversity book, book club um, where it was really led by the pupils actually. So there were a variety of books that I we Leon said with the kind of the, the librarian about, you know, LGBTQ plus, um, diversity, we had Black History Month as well. So the pupils were, they actually led on this um, and the we chose a book that we were all going to read and we, we would come back in after a few weeks and discuss um, it was fantastic and credit to the pupils I don't think we give enough credit to the pupils as well but something we really had to like focus on was was the age range as well we had some lovely kind of keen idea sevens but then I had some year 11 pupils as well so it's making a choice of book that's going to be appropriate for all the all the ages uh, but it, it was a brilliant experience um, and i think that's where the value comes in it, you know if we, we need to make use of extracurricular clubs as well um, we are sometimes we are limited we are we are limited because of exams and what we have to teach but that doesn't mean we can't do anything extra for the pupils as well if we can't fit it in a curriculum um, we can do it outside a curriculum um, and I, I was, it was so much value to it i think for the pupils and for me and, and the staff member as well, I, would, I think she would agree as well. Um, it was fantastic. Great. That sounds really, really motivating. In fact, to go back to some of the more sort of older texts or classic texts that you 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 end up um, introducing to the students, I'd love to know how how their reaction is and how you manage to try and motivate them to to read those, to study those texts. Are there any kind of tips you have for other teachers that might be listening about how you can actually increase the motivation and get the students uh, involved in those texts? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think firstly, so uh, just going back to the idea of the Iliad, now, you know, it is a really, really vast text and there's absolutely no way that you can get 11 to 12 year olds uh, engaging with the with the text in its entirety um, and, you know, understanding all the characters, all the gods and things like that. So, you know, you do have to kind of um, make a choice of, you know, what you sort of pick out from that text that you then present to them in the curriculum. Um, so, you know, when, when pupils are studying the Iliad in our particular school, so we primarily just focus on um, Achilles, his sort of relationship with uh, Patroclus. Sorry, do forgive me if I'm butchering the names. Um, but, um, or his relationship with Patroclus, his, uh, you know, how he's presented as a Homeric hero, where he breaks that Homeric hero code and things like that. Now, in terms of engagement with the text, I think firstly, it goes back to our expectations in the classroom and consistency. Now, um, it, you know, if pupils know that this is a valuable text that all of the pupils are studying, they do really, really value that, that actually, you know, this is obviously something really interesting. And, you know, it does kind of, a lot of it goes back to classroom practice as well. So, you know, you may be talking about these things, but some of the, you know, it's the, it's the ideas that we focus on that really makes it valuable for them. So, um, you know, we look at the idea of a tragic hero or we look, to, uh, look at the idea of, oh, you know, why is it important that, um, you know, wh why is it important that Homer presents Achilles as an imperfect hero, someone who is quite hubristic and actually that serves him, gives it, serves him a disservice. 
Um, and, you know, through that, we can then have wider discussions about, you know, what, what does that mean in our world? You know, does that mean that um, there is one type of hero or that all heroes are perfect? And I think people really value that, actually, that a lot of these literatures, you know, they do teach us those moral lessons um, that are, are universal, you know, and, you know, they're timeless. They aren't just, you know, time bound to to the Hellenic world, um, but that actually they, these are relevant conversations for uh, present day as well. Um, I think especially because, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you agree, but I do definitely think that pupils are so much more politically aware, maybe because of, you know, all the, cha uh, all the challenges that Britain has gone through and that, you know, the world has gone through in the last couple of years, but they are, I think maybe they are more readily they are more ready to have those conversations because um, of how aware they are of the world. Um, I'm not sure, what do you think, Aisha? Do you agree? I would agree. I think it's what we do with the with the text as well. Um, I know before they start the myths and legends, year six, we have that transition period, don't we, Assad? Mm -hmm. read an embryo version of Odyssey and that's the summer kind of homework a booklet that they have to bring in when they start year seven but again you know I think the value is is understanding the underlying kind of ideas of honor that Homeric hero and the concepts um, personified as well so it is is how you you know he how you raise I think it makes a really good link to, after we do the Iliad and um, the Odyssey we move on to the medieval and Beowulf and so forth um, and it's just it's it's what you do with it as well and I think pupils that kind of prior knowledge as well we should link to that as well and I know in primary school majority of primary primary schools they do probably you know learn about the Greek civilization they do have some understanding um, as well so linking to that prior learning as well understanding like for example Achilles wrath and how that leads to reconciliation and then the reintegration of, of a warrior this kind of universal ideas of like humanity um is what we need to focus on I think there's a lot of value to that and kids do kind of latch onto that as well um and growth as an individual as a human being um is something that we have to what we focus on and you know we can't read the whole epic poem it's impossible um so focusing on the parts and um, the most important parts are, are really important mm. just adding on to that i think um it's also really really um i think uh, so, you know we sometimes undervalue what pupils at that age can engage with so i think like you know especially again i know i keep referring to the past but in the past we may have thought oh you know maybe just do something like private peaceful holes with year seven and eight but actually you know they are you know the we really undermine you know the kind of discussion that they are really able to have um and actually it's only really recently through teaching of the classics that you realize the true potential of these pupils and how much they get out of it and actually because we start them off so early with the classics when it gets to something like you know in year eight then they look at frankenstein so they look at you know they they travel through time looking at the greek stories then uh the dark ages the uh, romanticism era renaissance and then looking at sort of frankenstein um they really really um you know it's it makes it so much more easier for them to then access those other texts and um, i think it's also the vocabulary that we sort of engage them with as well so you know pupils really um 
um, you know, they they can understand um, more complex ideas if it's explicitly taught. So, um, you know, when we're looking at vocabulary in Frankenstein, they're, they're taught vocabulary and concepts such as like the, the concept of the othering and um, the, you know, words like homogenous and homogenous societies and heterogeneous societies and why someone like the creature in Frankenstein, why he may be disadvantaged or why he may be othered in a more homogenous society. And they understand that because those words are explicitly taught to them um, and those concepts are easily taught to them. And, you know, they, they are able to then, you know, make an understanding of why that text is so relevant and valuable even nowadays. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I would never have thought a few years into my teaching that, you know, lower ability yourselves would be able to use words like petulance and hamasha um, in their rights. So having that kind of believing in them, that having that high quality teaching for all. And it goes back to that, what I mentioned earlier on about that dialogical teaching, you know, we, that we have at our school, we do teach vocabulary explicitly but before they start writing it down, we, there's a lot of questioning, use of Socratic questions I use um, quite often in my teaching. Um, you know, Socrates himself, you know, once said that questioning is the only defensible form of teaching. And that's that's the premise of what I kind of teach, the de development of that whole pupil. Um, and not, you know, just thinking that year seven, they cannot be taught this. They can. And we see, I see it every single day. And I said, you see it every single day as well, don't you? So, yeah, I think using oracy to support but not putting limits on pupils it's amazing what they can do with explicit teaching actually i i uh, so i have the privilege of teaching aisha's son who's actually currently in year eight studying frankenstein and you know it does always make me laugh because aisha tells me how you know how you know i obviously we're very lucky because he's very um he obviously very much enjoys english as well but he really enjoys going back home isn't it aisha and using those words that he's learned uh, you know saying oh mom i'm feeling very melancholy today or um i'm not sure if you can elaborate on those aisha yeah of course um i've got you to blame or thank as well i'm not too sure i said um the other day he was saying you know i am um um, I am fallible. I, I think I asked him to pick up his clothes and he's, I am fallible. Um, but what made me laugh the other day was um, we're getting late for work and apparently I had a lot of road rage. Um, and as we got um, to the school, he mentioned that I, he was counting down that apparently I was, um, is it Dante's Inferno? Yeah. Uh, on the seven pits of hell. Apparently I went through all the seven pits of hell. Um, during our travel to school. So um, thank you, Asad. But do you know what? It, it's really encouraging that he's really uh, absorbing it. And I'm not teaching year eight this year. Um, right. Frankenstein, I'm not teaching. And so it was, it was lovely to, at least, at least he's learning. It is that kind of having um, a higher, deeper learning of a, of a text. And, you know, I've never yeah. thought of um, teaching year eight. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, we do, you know, I do think it's really, really important <laughs> when we are teaching 
Um, something like Frankenstein as well. You know, those are deep, rich texts and they'll be full of allusions and things like that. So actually, yeah, that, you know, it's a quite comical example of Dante's Inferno, but actually we we explicitly went through what 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 is Dante's Inferno? What, what does it actually mean? And then why is it that Mary Shelley is utilizing that sort of allusion? And, you know, previously that kind of domain would have been completely restrained and, you know, it would have been completely kept for A-level classroom discussions but actually, you know, it's, you know, whilst we laugh, you know, about Aisha's little boy, you know, maybe um, taunting his mother with that illusion, but actually, you know, it does show real value in that, you know, they can engage in those discussions and those more richer discussions of illusions and why a writer is utilising those illusions and things like that. That's, that's hilarious. That's really funny. It's also great to, uh, to see that you you can get that kind of feedback because that's exactly the kind of thing you want to know is happening, isn't it, outside of the classroom? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? You know, we we do. You know, we do actually teach in a school that is, um, you know, is quite a disadvantaged area. And you know, a lot of the pupils that we are increasingly getting now in our school will not necessarily be pupils who come from you know reading rich homes and things like that. So I think they um, value it even more so, really, because they are they almost feel they they really value that we value them uh, in a way. So um, you know, it's it is really it is really wonderful to see them sort of engaging with those um uh, with all of those rich discussions absolutely i think you know when we started i said i know that i for one there's there's been a year on year increase of our disadvantaged pupils so where else are they mm -hmm. these um i think it's incumbent on us as educators to um give the pupils a wide range of texts that they engage in and where else are going to do that do you think in your situation uh, teaching what you teach is that the the biggest challenge that you face or are there others that you think are are more of more challenging do you know what it's um i don't think i've ever seen more changes in education than the last couple of years especially since the pandemic you know obviously um there you know it's so you know, we've seen nothing like this really in education, some of the challenges that pupils are going through. So obviously, you know, so we've had COVID, they've had lots of time at home, you know, lots of families um, will be, you know, financially more um, tied in, because of, um, you know, lots and lots of political changes around the world. There's, you know, lots of wars happening and things like that. So, you know, it is a, you know, it is a really, distressing and quite difficult time for pupils and you know if that means that actually education and the story the rich stories that we teach them can provide an escape from them uh, for them from uh, these difficult um you know challenges in our real world and help them be able to understand maybe even the those challenges through you know passive discussions from these texts then you know i really do feel like we're we're doing them a service in in introducing them to that um that kind of reading what do you think aisha yes i think after the pandemic i noticed a, you know a massive change and I don't know about you, Asa, do you agree with the mask wearing as well? Um, that's something why I led on RSE as well was uh, the pupils were just not, because they had to wear masks in classrooms, we couldn't do the kind of questioning. And uh, after, you know, the pandemic, you know, the kind of new normal started, the pupils were done, just not engaging in lesson. They just, I think they forgot because spending so long at home, you know, 
online learning you know not everyone was logging on and if they were were they actually engaging into the with the lesson or not and a lot of pupils were left alone at home parents were at work um so that was a massive impact and i think more so i think as english teachers we noticed you know english is a communication and i, I talk about my own kind of personal um experience as well being in school i went to quite a school that was quite difficult behavior and I never spoke in class at all and I, I often tell my pupils this um, and I really struggled when I started college and went back into uni, um, you know, university when I had my son. I just didn't know how to talk in front of people. Like even today now, this radio session, I've been telling us how nervous I am um, and I just don't want any pupil. I used to be in class and I used to wish that the teacher never asked me a question and I used to be happy after an hour that thank God she hasn't spoken to me. And now that the roles are reversed and I'm a teacher myself and I, and I look back and I go, that teacher was wrong. And I try to make sure even the quietest of pupils contribute to a lesson um, within that one hour that I have with them. Um, it's so important to have, you know, oracy skills. And I think there's a multitude of, you know, the disadvantage, but also the, what's going around in the world. I think it does impact on our pupils, but, you know, as educators, especially English teachers, I, I, I personally, I think you would agree, Asad, there has been a massive change after COVID. And I think one like line uh, when I was doing this kind of um, leading on oracy, one line that really kind of was important for me and I heard was, you know, your grades can get you at the door, but your oracy will get you through it. So are we, you know, are we providing that service for the pupils for that kind of whole? It's, it's not just about grades, it's about communication. Are they are they ready for the next steps? Interesting. that, And I can definitely relate to what you said, Aisha. I was a very quiet, shy child at school <laughs> and, and didn't really start coming into my own until probably after university, if I'm honest. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's something that I think is quite typical with a lot of people. That's interesting what you were both saying about the pandemic. How how did you find that experience, the kind of switch to online learning and then the post-online hybrid teaching, etc.? I'd love to hear what your experience was of that, whether the school that you're working with was was ready for it and how you and the school adapted to that and the students. I'd love to hear more about that. So I think um, that actually we we actually really benefited in a lot of ways um, during the pandemic. So, um, you know, during the pandemic, we um, maybe in comparison to a lot of other schools. Um, so we were actually going into school every single day. You know, we, um, so especially maybe, it, you know, it was the first maybe few months where we worked from home, but then certainly, you know, the following September, so I suppose what maybe six months after um, the start of the pandemic, we you know we were required to come come into school, and you know in hindsight, you know you you, you do kind of want to be like uh, everyone else, and you know have the capacity to work from home and things like that. But in hindsight, you know we really benefited from it. So it was during that time where we were uh, in the midst of transforming our key stage three curriculum, and and um, during that time we all um, uh, so as a as a faculty we all uh, led on uh, delivering CPD so even uh, being teachers and not you know necessarily having a leadership position we also led on our areas of expertise in um, knowledge but also in pedagogy as well and um, so I think that was a in a way you know in a in a uh, 
you know, ignoring all the other challenges. It was actually quite a positive time for us as teachers. Um, on the other hand, in terms of teaching the pupils themselves, you know, they obviously naturally benefited from the work that we were able to do as a team together. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think like Aisha said, because they didn't have a, I didn't think really any school was prepared for that kind of challenge. And, you know, we certainly didn't do any kind of online live lesson teaching until the following September, um, because our school was very methodical in, you know, how they wanted to sort of prepare the kids for it. Because obviously, you know, you can't just assume that uh, every child is going to have a laptop at home. You can't assume that every child is going to have a, you know, a a quiet place to sit down and engage with that lesson. Um, So it was a very tricky time and we didn't actually start doing live lessons until quite later on. But even by that time, you know, I do feel like, you know, suitable provision had been put into place. So if there were pupils who obviously couldn't log in to lessons online, then they did have the means to actually come into school and, um, you know, in a, and have a safe space to be able to engage with those live lessons as well. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a very tricky time, but I think that's why I really agree with Aisha when she said that actually oracy is something that we noticed is ever more important because they had so much time out and not engaging in those high quality talks that actually now it's almost a responsibility to ensure that they do actually engage in that. Yeah, I agree with you. When it all happened, it was a very tricky time and I was still an ECT. So there was years that I would have been spending trying to like learn how to teach and like try to be, you know, craft my kind of teaching. We were all on online learning. Um, but one thing I did notice it was that kind of you know the purpose that we have in teaching like learning through talk you know we, we formulate we build relationships through our talk you know the storytelling of Iliad we try to use that with the purpose of talk as well group work we couldn't do and I think it did impact and, and from my personal kind of at home my son um who was in primary school I, I noticed with him as well um he did go to school because I was one of those key kind of workers where he could have stayed in school but it, it was like there's a lot of learning lost and I think it will take years actually to for people to get to that kind of place as well understanding like roles within school I think be- impacting on behavior as well, I believe. Um, I don't know if you agree or think um, it did affect on the whole of pupil, but more so we needed to build in more kind of dialogical teachings to allow pupils to learn how to like work with one another and have those discussions, uh, which they never did um, in, you know, in lockdown. So yeah, it it, it was a, it was a big change. And, but you know, we did what best as we could. I think no school was prepared what was going to happen um so yeah i think yeah it it is something that we had to really kind of think about but for me as personally as well i I noticed with my son as well and the young people i worked with but also as someone that was just learning to her craft it it was difficult to just like now i've become a teacher but now stop now you're just going to do online learning um so it was a difficult time for everyone i think yes of course yeah uh interesting thanks for sharing that um, just to sort of start wrapping up, I'd love because it's a very it's a special interest of mine to hear if what has happened with the emergence of generative artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT, if if that started to have an impact on 
are you seeing that students are starting to use those tools and is that something you have to kind of think about when it comes to assessing students or or is it not have it had an impact yet? So I don't know, Aisha, did you want to maybe comment on that initially? I'm not, I haven't really noticed anything from, maybe from the last discussion I've had, from lower down pupils, I haven't heard anything. I know some discussions in my form, but I would say something in year 12 maybe. Um, so the, the way that A-level language that I teach, um, there is an aspect of it, which is coursework. And I think you still have to think about, you know, plagiarism and how it's you know how it, we don't know i think that's the future is very unknown i think our head teacher yesterday i said if you remember touched upon in his speech um as well mm-hmm. um and personally i'm sorry but i haven't really looked into it that that much but it is something that i am thinking about um as well and i think it will have a big impact um especially for for our older pupils who have that kind of coursework aspect of the course as well but for younger pupils and um, in our years I haven't I don't know about you I said I haven't really noticed anything um so actually just um from my personal point of view so I think um the only negative example that I can think of is um I think last year so not because of the pandemic but um because of um some i think maybe because of the snow day i think we were we sort of had to have a day where the pupils worked from home and they had live lessons and i do remember sort of asking pupils lots and lots of questions um now they weren't allowed to sort of have their microphones on um so they would write their answers in the chat and there were sort of pupils who uh, were maybe unwilling to sort of engage in the lesson and therefore they kind of made it a point to kind of uh, use ChatGPT for um, to get their answers and things like that. Now, obviously, that's quite an isolated example, but I think within the context of school itself, I think firstly, yeah. So I I think because of the nature of our curriculum, so I think uh, I think I should you can probably back this up as well. So I think what we teach is so explicit that if the pupils are seen to be maybe plagiarizing from um from ai it's actually really really obvious um so you know even down to so obviously you know we started off this conversation talking about grammar for writing and there are certain grammatical constructions that we want them to use in and certain sentences and sentence structures and things like that that at every single stage that they are within their curriculum there is a explicit writing curriculum and i think that actually really helps to combat and very easily identify when they are not using those things because at the moment you know ai and i will talk about this in a second as well why it is actually an extremely valuable tool but um ultimately i think where you have a almost like a bulletproof curriculum which focuses on explicit vocab explicit writing and things like that now ai you know isn't able to replicate all those things at the moment it's extremely good but you know it doesn't do all of those things for you so you know pupils are aware of that and i think the more like i said the more bullet proof your curriculum is the less likely it is that that people will want to obviously use um artificial intelligence for that now on that same note as well 
I personally use um, um, AI quite a lot um, just to, and I've been sort of experimenting in how to use that. So, you know, it is actually, I, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos and I'm sure you can probably find them yourself as well. It's actually a great tool for teachers. So, you know, we, uh, you know, the profession is often marred for, you know, creating a, a huge workload for teachers and things like that. But, um, you know, I have used it probably in a very limited capacity uh, because obviously you know i'm not very learned in uh, artificial intelligence but it's great for you know things like making quizzes and things like that which you know things that will take you um hours but you know that might actually pupils might only engage with that activity for a good five minutes in a lesson and i think it's it's really really useful it has a lot of benefits in um, for those kinds of things so you know i think um it's obviously you know it's the wild west out there at the moment with artificial intelligence and i do strongly think that it has you know huge benefits for teachers and especially workload um uh, but i think it also depends on whether how bulletproof your curriculum is um you know as to whether you can identify when a pupil has used chat gpt or whether they have used you know their own knowledge and their own skills obtained through their education i mean mm -hmm. i think there is value but what worries me a little bit about ai is that the change of human values just broadly speaking um and the autonomy that we have and fairness i think that's you know that cannot be replaced you know ai cannot be replaced that kind of human connections that we have and empathy that we feel yeah um i can understand for like workload aspects of things but like you said our curriculum is so prescriptive that we will know if a pupil has used ai um i think i still believe <laughs> i don't know I'm, i still think of ai a bit i don't know i just think it helps with creativity and a baby workload but I, I don't know the ethical and the social implications of AI just worry me. Um, I'm, I don't. I'm not gonna lie. I just think that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, I think it's so because it's so vast. I can't even beyond my little understanding of oh okay i can use this to make a little quiz i i don't even think i can fathom myself what it actually means because i'm not very you know i i'm not very techie i don't necessarily engage with tech on that regular basis and um so you know it's just something that i've kind of experimented with in a hugely limited capacity but yeah like aisha said it's probably wild you know we are that compassion we have empathy and we have honesty and equity and i think when we do create a lesson or curriculum we, we we want to take responsibility and accountability for that and i think what worries me a little bit if you know if we rely upon ai and you know i've read some i remember read it, i can't remember when i read it but i did read about the impact of ai there is like there is a bias in and discrimination within ai ai sorry can't say it properly and algorithms um they do reflect some biases um so i think that integrity that we have when we create something ourselves the pupils that we know ai cannot take over from that and it's, it's knowing your pupils. Yeah, and actually just going based on that, based on what you were saying, Aisha, about um, the humanness uh, in education, that you can't replace that. I think I've definitely noticed. So I think because maybe I'm, because I you do utilize it for things like quizzes and things like that, um, I think I've like naturally kind of transitioned into more sort of like active lessons where you know that are more human that you know something that ai can't replicate so you know i've really you know started practicing things like choral reading and things like that and 
you know, going back to what Aisha said, the questioning, that the questioning that a skilled teacher can do, okay, for um, each of their pupils, vulnerable or not, um, you know, high attaining or not, that I, you know, I've, I've, I struggle to um, think of how AI might replicate that yeah. um, in a classroom. And I don't think, and really, I think in the last couple of years, you know, I've, I've really, truly come to understand um, what it means to have valuable relationships in a classroom. And the, I think the more I develop as a teacher and realize, you know, that pupils really rely on their connections to us um, as trusted adults, you know, I really don't think that it's something that could ever replace education because it's such a empathic uh, profession that actually that could never be recreated yeah i agree with you we started off for example with grammar didn't we asad um mm -hmm. so say if they type in let's say chat gpt and some pupils say my year 12s so i'm trying maybe when i tell them to write a, a like a, a short opening an exposition for us a setting and they use say mm -hmm. chat gpt um to help with that is that autonomy and i just don't want you know pupils when we're talking about like you know sorry i'm trying to get my words right but you know when we're talking about the pandemic when pupils were working from home and technology we were just using technology i didn't see there was a value at that point we had to do live lessons but nothing can replace that that human connection um and i just mm. there are, the impact on ai we don't know yet it's it's the unknown but there is nothing can replace that human connection and i think it's all about accountability and responsibility we don't want teachers to start creating things using ai and saying you know this is so done and then people as well i think i don't know i we don't know i'm sorry i can't really give an actual answer but all i know is that it's something we've got to respect the human dignity and autonomy that we have and sometimes i fear that ai will take over that and i think it is a little bit at the moment now that, that's fascinating to hear you both talk about how you reflecting on it and how it may well be changing what what you do as teachers and and what the learners do i think you're absolutely right i think we're, we're right at the beginning of this at the moment and i've no we have no idea how things are going to develop but we do need to keep on top of it and understand but i think the key that you both mentioned i think is there is that the humanity the be you know what makes us special as humans what 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 can AI not do is is what I think uh, the focus is is on uh, when it comes to teaching and learning, definitely. So listen, thank you very much, Aisha and Asad, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed listening to you and chatting to you today about your work and uh, your not. And thanks for sharing your knowledge and experience with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having us as well. I was, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. And I do really hope that anything that we've discussed is of value. And Oh, um, definitely. Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That's great. And uh, well, all, all the best with your new position, Asad. Oh, and, uh, and and you too, Aisha, all the best with uh, the, the remainder of this academic year and, and the next. And it's been lovely speaking to you and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 So everybody, that brings us to the end of today's Twilight Show. And many thanks to uh, today's guests, Aisha and Asad. I found I really found that fascinating to talk to them both about uh, their work as English teachers. And I, I hope you did as well. 
And so that's it from me. There are Teachers Talk radio shows all week on all manner of interesting topics. So please listen in live or to the recordings. And I hope you will enjoy me again next week or join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.